Dons fans, Jonathan Walsh here, and welcome once again to another episode of Don the Stat. Round one is done and won, with the Don sitting on top of the ladder, and the Gold Coast Suns are just around the corner. To chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host, Ian Hume. Hume, how's things, mate? Look, the highest of Sunday's win have come crashing down with a COVID diagnosis on Tuesday. Uh, luckily for me, it hasn't been too bad. It is my first one. It's taken three years, but it's finally caught up with me. Uh, just a sore throat and a bit of a headache. So hopefully should be all right by the end of the weekend. Um, the whole household has got it. Um, so it hasn't been too lonely having it, having it, and none of them are too sick either, thankfully. So it's actually been nice spending some family time together the last couple of days and just having fun around the house. How are you doing, Jono? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Uh, always... Yeah, it's it's been nice to have an extra spring in the step uh, early in the week, coming off a big win, and um, yeah, feeling good about life. And wearing my Don's cap down to the local cafe to get a coffee in the morning, and and you know, hoping people will want to talk footy to me rather than um, hoping people don't. So, yeah, it, it, definitely a nice start to um, start to the twenty twenty three footy season, mate. But glad you and the family are holding up okay and, and doing well. Yeah, I think we'll think we'll make it through okay. Um, before we start tonight, I just want a couple of shout outs. Firstly, thanks to the boys on the Big Footy Bombercast for having me on this week. It was great fun. It, it's the podcast that I first started with uh, back in 2021, doing a few episodes here and there. And that sort of led to eventually what this became. I think it's probably what gave the idea to ask me to do this. Um, give it a listen. Uh, I'll leave a link to the description uh, in the episode for that podcast. And then I also want to give thanks to Esky0002 and Gary Forever for their great reviews on Apple Podcasts. Also actually check Spotify for the first time and notice we had 19 five-star reviews. So thank you to those people. And then also a big thanks to our new patrons, Andrew Bucock, Luciana Spaliara, Nick Fischera and Jonathan Zock. Uh, so again, thanks for all your ongoing support and for all our patrons for their support of the show. Yeah, I had a listen this morning, mate, to, to your uh episode on the big footy bomber cast the guys there do a great job so yeah well worth it for anyone who who gives us a listen if they're looking for some more don's podcast content to to give them a look and uh yeah i particularly enjoyed well i've enjoyed all of our reviews but the one for from gary who said we were as good as a leon baker blind turn certainly gave me a bit of a smile leon baker's number four was the first number i ever had on my on a bomber's jumper so um Yes, whilst, whilst I don't, uh, I'm not quite confident enough in in ourselves to to take that for granted. It was, uh, it certainly gave me a smile on my face. So yeah, thanks for that, guys. Yeah, that might be the clubhouse leader in terms of reviews. Then, so if you want to challenge that, you can leave a review, and we'll see if we can get a better one than that. Look, let's talk about last Sunday, and it's always more fun to do these reviews after a win, and just generally is one of the most fun days at the football I've ever had. Uh, things like Davies' first game, Ridley's first goal, and then obviously all the emotion around Tipper. And then obviously that was capped off with a big win against an arch rival. It's about as good a start to the season as we could have expected. Yeah, it was, mate. I, I heard you say something similar on, on Big 42. And um, yeah, it, it's the most fun I've had as well for a long, long time. I think that just to be able to sit there in that last quarter in particular and soak it all up and enjoy it and... Uh, you know, know that we were going to win the game of footy. It feels like forever since we've been in that position. So, uh, and then all the individual highlights that came with it were were great. And the crowd was brilliant. And, you know, I'm, I'm digging really deep to admit this, but kudos to the Hawks fans as well, who, um, you know, showed a, a great deal of um, 
I guess, empathy and football awareness to to get behind Waller as well and, and clap him onto the ground and cheer after he kicked his goal. Um, yeah, that that was uh, yeah huge credit to them as well. But yeah, great day at the footy, great to get the win and and so many yeah wonderful moments. It was a great way to start twenty twenty three. Absolutely. So what we'll do first is we'll go through what our predictions for what we needed to do to win the game were from last week. And then we'll have a bit more of a broader look at the game before moving on to looking at the Suns. So the first step was to limit the effectiveness of Sicily and their intercepting defenders. We identified them as Hawthorne's key strength. Uh, Obviously, it's been well documented that Hawthorne are very lacking in terms of age and experience profiles, but they're Back half is probably their strongest area. And if you went and looked at what those halfbacks did, particularly Sicily, as we we focused on, but also Day and Jath, uh, Sicily was up on most of his statistical averages from 2022, except for metres gained and disposal efficiency. So for me, that suggests that even though we got he got his hands on the ball, our structures were able to restrict his effectiveness somewhat. Uh, interesting to note, he actually attended centre bounces as well, and he actually won a clearance. Uh, he won two centre clearances, and that's actually the first time I think he's ever done that in his career. So it seems like Mitchell was moving him into that area to try and get him into the game more. Uh, also, Day and Jath were also up on the previous year's statistical averages. So it suggests that we weren't quite as good in terms of limiting them from a statistical point of view. But how did you see the overarching way in which we controlled the ability of their halfbacks to influence the game. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I missed the Sicily going into the centre one uh, live on game day. So I was, I was surprised when I saw that in the um, in the stats afterwards and then also watching the replay. But I think, you know, they moved Hardwick forward in the last quarter, didn't they? So they, another one of their sort of run and dash defenders. So they, they really did throw the magnets around. Uh, Will Day played a fair bit of the game through the midfield, so you probably expect because of that that his numbers are up. And you know he he had a really good game, and he's a good young player. But yeah, I I thought all in all it's a big tick. We spoke about using Langford in that you know that forward role, try as someone who can be really creative, find space, and and really hurt opposition teams coming into the forward fifty. And I think. You know, when, when we said that, we anticipated that Martin would play most of the game on the wing. And in the end, it was Perkins and Martin that had that dual, you know, center, almost center half forward style roles or those high half forward roles. Caldwell did it at, at times as well. Um, yeah, Perkins was the star of the show. He kicked the three goals. But between Perkins and Martin in particular, they were just involved in so many of their in of our forward chains. Their defenders, who, who for a lot of the game was Sicily and, and Jath, dropped off them. And those guys just got into danger, dangerous positions through the corridor and and allowed us to then uh, allowed them and their foot skills to set up scoring opportunities through our small forwards. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it worked really well. And, and then I think that the other thing that worked well on the day, which we spoke about too, was that we made sure when we did have to go long to a contest, we were doing it to a, a genuine contest, a, a, a mass of players and not to a, a two-on-one that would have allowed them to, to intercept. So... Yeah, not perfect, but I think given that was their real danger, I think we did a good job. Yeah, and I guess moving on to the next one, we we talked about Zach Merritt and getting him into dangerous positions forward and rely on others to take the centre bounce rotation. So uh, long-time listeners of the show know that we've taken a very uh, keen eye on the centre bounce rotations used, uh, how Essendon compares to the best sides in the comp. And on the Sunday, we saw that Essendon used four main players through there. So Parrish attended 
Setterfield 74, and then Shield and Merritt both 67%. The only other midfielder to attend a center bounce was Caldwell with only two. He was actually quite effective in that. He got two center clearances out of his two attendances. It was clear that after halftime, the Hawthorne mids were flagging uh, and that allowed Essen to get more effective center clearances, but that's not going to work against the better sides. Hopefully Caldwell only attending two was just a reflection of the fact that his fitness levels aren't quite there yet. We can see him inserted more into the rotation and allow players like Parrish more break time so they can be more effective towards the ends of games. It's something we've talked about a lot that we, we probably need to have at least five players rotating through that center bounce in order to get the most effectiveness out of each of them. As to Zach in particular, it seemed like he got into more offensive positions in the second half, particularly in the third quarter, where he was quite busy around the 50-meter arc. Uh, seems that uh, Brad Scott trusted him to work through the McGuinness tag just by outrunning him in the midfield and not needing to put him forward to break that tag. We also saw Zach take McGuinness to uh, dangerous Hawthorne players and, and potentially create free players for Essendon. Um, and as we saw, that that worked because Merritt was able to have 21 of his 29 disposals in the second half. Again, that's probably not going to work against the best run with players in the competition, although Zach as he's got more experience uh, dealing with the tag, he's probably better equipped to deal with the tag these days than he was a couple of years ago. Yeah, well said, mate. I, there were four things I liked about Zach's game. I, I think the first thing was that he built his game around tackling and pressure. So he didn't get a lot of ball in the first half, as you mentioned, but he did lead us for pressure acts in quarter one and, and had the second most in, in the second quarter. So he led us at halftime. So even though he wasn't getting his hands on the footy, he was still working really hard to, to apply pressure and to tackle. I really liked his work rate. You touched on that as well. He kept going all the way to the end and, you know, he was playing on a, a relatively inexperienced player. So you would hope that he had the fitness to outrun him and and he did. I like that, again, you know, you touched on it. We we as a team and, and Zach as a, as a captain did something to disrupt that tag and not just try and purely beat it through being better, but that going to round up Hawthorne's, you know, most dangerous mids at stoppage, creating a two-on-one, asking something different of Sam Mitchell and, and his midfield group, uh, and then also create space for our other mids to work into. Um, you know, not only did, uh, when he, when Zach started doing that, did, um, you know, Hawthorne have some questions to answer, but it was sort of around the time that Darcy Parrish and Dylan Shields started to come more into the game as well. And then I liked that he, at least it looked to me that he tried to bring Waller into the game. Um, I remember talking on an episode last year where I felt that Kane Baldwin just needed to get a goal for his confidence, having not kicked one in his first two games and how really strong clubs with, you know, strong leaders have a, a way of bringing teammates that are struggling a little bit into a game and not that Waller was struggling and just come on, but it just felt to me that, that Zach had a real sense of the occasion and, and put himself into positions where he could use, his weapon, which is his his foot skills to to get um to get Wallace and ball and and I think he found him twice, didn't he? Um, so yeah, I, I I like that about his game too, and to me that was a really strong sense of of leadership and occasion. Yeah, I think he's really set the tone for what kind of leader he's going to be, and we'll see that develop across the season. Just before we new move on to the next one, just want to make mention of Darcy Parish. Uh, one of the things I really took away from his game was. He was much more willing to kick the ball. And, you, you know, I think there's been a lot of concern about Darcy Parrish's foot skills and that may have weighed on him and and his willingness to kick. I think it seems like he's been given the license by Brad Scott to kick more, even if his kicking isn't always, you know, pinpoint to a target. 
And I think the fact that we've got more pressure forwards in the forward line means that he he's also more confident in doing that because as long as he doesn't kick it straight to the opposition, he's kicking it into a situation where if it's at very least a neutral ball, then we're going to have the players to uh, trap it in and create other opportunities. I think that's going to make him a more effective player. If you look at his last two full seasons, uh, he's averaged more handballs than kicks. I think if we get Darcy Parrish with more kicks and handballs across the season, we're going to be a more dangerous side. He also kicked on his opposite a few times, didn't he? Which isn't something I've seen him do before. And I guess it was that he had that tendency in his game to to get himself out of trouble by doing a U-turn or looping backwards and handballing instead of kicking. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's something in that where, you know, whether it's Brad Scott's built some confidence in him or it's more confidence in what's happening down the ground, but it certainly seems to me that he is much more prepared to use his his foot um, than his hand, and, and that included going on to his opposite, which, you know, just helped us maintain territory when we needed to. Mm. And finally, we talked about having a watch on Dylan Moore, someone who could potentially carve us up. Uh, Moore had 20 disposals, but no scoring shots, no goal assists, only two tackles, only two inside 50s, and only 163 metres gained. Of all the Hawthorne players with over 10 disposals, only Nash had less metres gained. So it was a very ineffective game. If you compare his that to his stats from last year, you'd have two scoring shots a game, uh, four tackles, four inside 50s, and 325 metres gained a game. So it seems like, uh, although there wasn't necessarily one person running with him all the time, we were really good at limiting his effectiveness. And he's one player who could have driven Hawthorne forward and potentially allowed them to put more of a score on the board. Yeah, I I think in this case, it was a bit more of what was happening up the ground, wasn't it? That he just wasn't given much of an opportunity to really get looks in front of goal. What did surprise me was that he... Uh, he didn't attend a centre bounce, so they didn't really play him through the midfield at all. And given he's such a powerful and dynamic player, I thought that might have been something that they did to to break things up. He also got most of his ball on a halfback flank, so he really did have to come. He was playing as a forward, but he had to come high up the ground. And that actually helped us because it allowed us to set up behind him. So, you know, Hawthorne ideally want him getting the ball you know, 70 metres, you know, 70 to 30 from goal. And and he was getting it, you know, 120, 150 from goal. So um, maybe not quite 150, I'd probably screw my mess up. But yeah, certainly a lot, a lot further up the ground than, um, than I reckon Hawthorne would have liked. So I think that was a big win for us that he had to go searching for the footy and, and we were able to set it up the other way. Absolutely. Well, look, let's just sort of wrap up around Hawthorne and, and th- think about, you know, just that game more generally. What do you take out of the game like that? I know there's been some media commentary when it hasn't been about internal Essendon power struggles, which we're not going to get into tonight. Um, that, you know, it wasn't a wasn't a great win in terms of who you're playing. Obviously, Hawks are going to struggle this year. And I think it was Lee Montagna uh, straight after uh, on the Sunday night footy shows that that was the least amount of pressure that a side put on since 2021. So quite a quite a performance that didn't really test Essendon in terms of the contested style. What do you take out of that game? I think there's a lot to take out of it, mate. I think whilst we had a lot of good players and, you know, we probably didn't have a bad player on the ground, really. I think this wasn't a win that came off 
individual brilliance, which has really been what carried us through that 2021 season, wasn't it? It was, you know, Peter Wright kicking a bag or Stringer dominating. This was a game that was much more about a consistent effort across the board. And, you know, we, we had some players that were obviously better than others, but uh, it was it felt to me that it was much more about that sort of system and effort. And, you know, speaking of Peter Wright, he was our leading goal kicker last year. I think Stringer two years before that, I think the two years before that was Waller, who was a sub. And then before that, you're going back to Joe Danaher. So we've we've scored 124 points without any of our, you know, real dominant goal kickers on the ground um, that have assisted us to keep winning scores over the last, you know, you know four or five years. So I think that's a, a win in itself. Um, we can't control the opposition and their level of effort, but what we can control is our own. And I thought our effort was great from start to finish. I, I don't think there was any real part in the game where we came to a stop. Yeah, maybe in the last five or six minutes, we, we kind of put the cue in the rack a, a little bit, but it also didn't, you know, eventuate in them kicking a lot of goals. We put a team away, which is something that we haven't done for a long time. Um, you know, had the foot on the throat, so to speak, and and kept it there and, and, and really did grind in. And then there were a couple of things in, in terms of how the game was played that I, I think was an improvement. And, um, and I, I focused on areas that Hawthorne are good at because, yes, they're young and, uh, and they're going to probably have a pretty poor year. But there's parts of their game that they would pry themselves on and they would be expecting to to either win or break even in. We won the stoppages around the ground, which is a part of the game we've struggled. We've been good at centre clearance, but not good at stoppage clearance. We won those 17 to 11, and we scored four goals, three from stoppages. It was our second highest scoring source of the game, and that's not something you associate with Essendon. And I do think that Hawthorne, would have gone into the game hoping to, at the very least, break even in stoppages. And then we scored 11 goals, 5, 71 points from turnovers, and that included five goals from turnovers in our forward half. So this is a team, and all the media outlets have liked to talk about it, and fair enough too, that has allowed teams to race out of our forward line and go coast to coast. Um, and we are playing against an opposition whose strength is intercept marking and, and rebounding in their back line. They scored one goal, two from chains that started in our forward 50 and that included just one behind from kick in. So I think we take a lot out of those parts of the ground made and, and, you know, take that as a sign that, you know, we've, we've put some work in and, you know, the, at the first test it's passed and, and not just passed, but, but we've actually done really well. Yeah. And I guess it sort of flows into what we were taking away from the preseason games. Yes. The saints game didn't go our way, but we could see there that the structures defensively were fairly sound or at least fairly sound compared to what came before. What else did we take away from that in terms of relation to what we saw in the practice games? Yeah, I think there was two things. Um, that was one of them, but I'll get onto it in a sec. But the other was that, you know, we didn't get a good look at our ball movement, did we, in the two practice games, given the wind conditions in both. And, you know, we've heard through Brad Scott and others in the media that there will be a, a larger focus on kicking this year and, and and getting territory. And that was the case. We Our kick to handball ratio was 1.6, uh, which was, you know, so 1.6 kicks to every handball, which was up on 1.42 in 2022. So, that, you know, that's an improvement. Uh, only three times last year do we have a kick ratio that was that high. That's not massive across the comp. It was equal seventh in round one, but it did seem we're more insistent on using handball to go forward rather than handballing out of trouble. The Darcy Parish example that we spoke about before. So when we were handballing, it was positive handball chains, moving forward, run and carry, overlap handball, rather than, you know, one, two, three, four, five handballs to try and find a way out of trouble. 
and then we were using we were really only kicking sideways against something that we saw a lot of last year but sideways to switch and move forward up the ground rather than to just control possession. So I think that that was a big change on last year and, and a step in the right direction. And then that defensive setup, which you you touched on, I think we really saw the impact of our small forwards or, or pressure forwards applying pressure. I mentioned that there were those five goals from turnovers in our forward half of the ground, but we were pretty effective in stopping Hawthorne going coast to coast. Uh, we spoke post St Kilda game about how a few times we got caught out with not having someone over the back protecting the the ball drop over the back or that that quick counter attack and and I think other than one in the first quarter where Laverde and um, and Zerk Thatcher got themselves a little bit confused and and uh, Hawthorne and I think it was Fergus Watts kicked his first goal didn't he um, they sort of got a little bit confused and and. Uh, lost a what was a two on one and to our advantage, but besides that, did a much better job of having that last man um, in the zone and, and making sure that we had protection over the back. We had sixty six inside fifties for the game, which was more than we had in any game last year. So that's a huge improvement. Talks to that that kick ratio and moving the ball forward. Hawthorne went from our forward line to their own forward line eighteen times. Six of those were from kick-ins, so there's still some work to do there. They only scored the one behind, but we still did allow them to get a bit too much territory. But that set-up and, and that goalkeeper position did allow us to win the ball back 12 times. So 66 inside 50s, you know, put 124 points on the on the board, big tick. 18 times we allowed Hawthorne to get from our forward line to their own, but we won the ball back through turnover 12 times. So we were, you know, even when we allowed them to get territory, we were still maintaining pressure up the ground. We didn't make it easy for them when we had outnumbers in their, in their forward 50. So I think, you know, it, again, we can only beat who we were up against, but I think it was as good a start as we could hope for in that part of the game. I agree. And this week is probably going to be a bit of a step up. It's, it's a kind of nice, to start the season this way, you generally have a step up in terms of uh, teams that you're coming up against. And so you get to game, see how the new system stacks up against more and more difficult opponents. And this week's opponent is the Gold Coast Suns. Now, people seem to like the Liam Baker clip I put at the end of the Hawthorne match preview. Uh, so I've decided to make it a thing going forward. So I put it out on Twitter for people to suggest moments against the Suns to be considered. And the main ones that people came up with were obviously the record first quarter in 2011, as well as Rima's eight goals, uh, Ryder's big bender, um, that great kick for goal. He did, uh, I think, 2013 or 2014, one of those two. Uh, Hooker's match winner from 2019. And obviously last year, Draper's goal of the year. So uh, listen to the end to find out what I chose to put as the highlight. Yeah, Jacob Townsend Cup this week. Uh, the Reamers one is the one that stands out to me the most, mate. The, as great as the Sammy Draper goal was last year, that yeah, the Reamers really did turn it on that that game, and we really did think we'd found a player. I think he was probably a guy who struggled a little bit with the professional requirements of of AFL football, but uh, on raw talent and ability, he had a lot of it. So yeah, a bit of a shame that he he couldn't quite um have the career that that he might have but uh yeah he was he was elite that day that was a pretty incredible performance sometimes it's better to um burn out than fade away and then at least he's got one performance that'll live on in the memories of Essendon fans 
So let's look at the Suns. And obviously, since we were sort of at the start of the season, we'll keep looking back to what teams did last season. And the Suns finished 12th with 10 wins and, and 12 losses and a percentage of 102.8. Now, that's the best season for them since 2014 when Gary Ablett had his amazing season before he did his shoulder uh, in terms of ladder position. Uh that is the most wins they've had in a season since 2014, and that's their best percentage in club history. So for the Suns' perspective, it was actually quite a successful year, even if they still didn't make the finals. Uh, the notable wins came out of uh, the Swans, uh, Fremantle, and Richmond, although they only won three of their last nine games, and that's probably what cost them the chance to push for a final spot. In terms of the notable stats from 2022, they had the highest kick to handball ratio in the league of 1.94, almost two kicks for every handball. It was well over two for most of the season and dropped a little back a little uh, towards the end. And I was going back to 2007 to find a team that had a uh, higher kick to handball ratio. It was a really clear indication of how they wanted to play. Uh, Really strong in the clearances, as you'd imagine, with players like Miller, Anderson and Rao, they were ranked fourth in clearance differential, so plus 1.9 against their opponents per game. Uh, that allowed them to generate more inside 50s than their opponents, so they were fifth for inside 50 differential. With such a quality Ruckman in Jared Witts, who I think probably would be in the top three Ruckman in the competition, they were third for hitouts differential. So, again, lining up with their, their strong clearance uh, focus. Uh, and then, as you would imagine, in those tight areas, they were quite good at contested possession. So six contested possession differential. And then with uh, players like Isaac Rankin and Nick Coleman, they were uh, fifth in terms of average tackles inside 50. So from last year, just by looking at the stats, I, I can't say I watched too many Suns games, but for me, the game plan was seemingly win the ball in the contest, uh, take territory through kicking, and then either a mark through their uh, bevy of tall forwards uh, or lock it in with the small forwards. However, there were some areas where they were weak, and that sort of explains why they were often found out and ended up finishing 12th. They were the fourth worst intercept differential, so they gave up far more intercepts than they generated. Uh, They had the worst uncontested possession differential and the fifth worst marks differential. So once teams could get it on the outside against the Suns, they found it really difficult to take it back, and that allowed their opposition to control the game and create the opportunities that they wanted to. And they're also the fourth worst rebound 50 differentials. So they found it really hard to move the ball out of their back 50. Um, so we'll come back around to this when we look at what happened in their first game of the season and see if much has changed. Yeah, I think that outside part of the game is one we can really exploit. But in order to do that, we're going to have to get it right on the inside. So that'll no doubt be a big focus. Well, I, I know it is because we talked about it already, but that'll be a big focus of of what we, we think we need to do this week. Um, in terms of personnel, the they haven't really lost a lot from their list, have they? Uh, you know, Isaac Rankin is that big out that he got traded to Adelaide or wanted to go home to Adelaide and, and was traded out. And then Jack Bowers, uh, and yeah, as you said, his best mate pick seven went to to Geelong, but he wasn't playing a lot of footy for them. So uh, I think, you know, that there's salary cap reasons and, and whatnot for that. But um, yeah, Ben Long from St Kilda's um, already made his way into their best 22. Connor Blakely is named on the extended bench. They've got Jed Anderson across, but he's he hasn't been picked in their first two games. Uh, and then I guess the big two ins for them, though, were Ben King and Lockie Waller, who are both back from long-term injuries. King played last week and, and Lockie Waller's back in the team this week. Yeah, so obviously those two didn't play against Essendon 
last time when Essendon faced the Suns and again, it was at Marvel uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, so last time Essendon 14, 19, 103 defeated the Suns 8, 7, 55. So Essendon kicked 10 goals to four after quarter time. And that gives them the comfortable 48 point win. Uh, Merritt with 36 disposals, Redmond 34, Sheila McGrath 29 apiece. And then Stringer with four goals, uh, Munn with two goals and 25 disposals, Wright kicked two goals, and then Traper kicked two goals and obviously kicked that amazing goal of the year. Uh, for Gold Coast, uh, Miller had 28, but only nine in quarters two and three where the game was there to be won. That's when Caldwell was running a hard tag on him. It was let go in the last quarter and, and Miller got 12, uh, much to the excitement of the people behind where we were sitting because I'm pretty sure they had Miller in a multi for 30 disposals and he didn't quite get there. Um, Anderson had 24 and Lacocious 22. Uh, one thing to note was their big key forwards, Sam Day, Marbiel Chol, and Casbolt all kicked two goals. So six of their eight goals came from their big key forwards. So even in a big win for Essendon, those tall forwards did cause issues for our defence. Yeah, and it poses an interesting one come selection, doesn't it? And, and we'll talk about that in a sec. But do we need to look at Baldwin this week as a, a taller defensive cover, or or do we, you know, go about it in a different way? Yeah, I think I don't think we went for the the tall options last time. I think we just trusted our interceptors to have enough of an influence to to move it on, or you know, play Ridley in that key defensive role and have him run off um, those big defenders and still be able to play that intercept role last time. Anyway, looking at selection, obviously again, Sunday games, and this will probably be a big thing uh, for us this year, talking about extended benches and not having the full team list, but Essendon ins uh, Baldwin, D'Ambrosio and Snelling, who are all emergencies last week, and then Guelphie potentially for his first game of the season. Uh, Anthony McDonald, Tipper Woody goes out, as I think a lot of people imagined he needs game time and can't, probably not ready to play a full game uh, in the AFL yet. So that means probably plays VFL. Obviously the simple swap there is, is Guelphie for a Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody as the sub. Um, maybe Menzi rolls the sub and Guelphie plays the full game. Um, I can't imagine that D'Ambrosio plays the sub role. He needs a full game somewhere. And I guess the major curveball with that is whether they want Baldwin in as another tall defender um, if I was trying to find space, that would be Heppel making way and Langford moving to full-time wing. Baldwin comes in as that seventh defender and they, they sort of rotate around there. Uh, but Heppel's named on the ground and I think unlikely to be dropped. Uh, how would you lo- look to get him in if they went that route? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. But Heppel, one, making way and Langford moving to a wing probably makes the most sense. Uh, I guess the other option that they do have though is that they can play Ridley off Casbolt. Uh, I think he's you know Casbolt's pretty much a straight lines player um and not a great kick so even if he did go kick searching a little bit and Ridley dropped off we're probably not going to be punished too much by foot if he's getting a little bit of the ball up the ground so I uh, I the, the more I think about this um the more I think that we'll just keep it simple and it'll be Guelphie for for Waller but yeah, uh, I think I think Ridley on Casbolt. It, it does leave BCT and Laverde stretched on King and Chol, but Baldwin himself is only 193 centimetres. So, you know, he's not a 200 centimetre, you know, player like Reed who's going to have the reach on someone like King. Um, so, 
yeah, I, I think I'll probably keep this simple. But the other big selection news is um, Jake Stringer has been picked in the VFL this week, which I guess is a, a much easier decision when you're coming off a big win and and you've kicked plenty of goals and, and all of your forwards have performed really well. So there was no obvious one to leave out for him. But uh, it certainly seems like a, a big change in direction to what we've seen from Essendon in the past. And looking at the Suns, they've got Lockie Weller coming back after his ACL. He's been named on the ground, so it does seem likely to play. And then Sexton, Blakely and Roses uh, added to their extended bench. They're out is Davies, who was the sub last week. He's been admitted. Uh, so, as I said, Weller named on the ground suggests he'll be in their starting side and he'll be a big addition to them in terms of moving the ball from half back, which is an area they struggled with against the Swans. And if we look at how they went against the Swans, it they had the second worst loss of the round up after Hawthorne. So 9-7-61, loss to the Swans, 16-14-110. They obviously be really disappointed with that. And the last few years, they've actually done quite well against the Swans and being a home game for them, they would have, uh, you know, at least looking to be a lot more competitive against last year's uh, finalists. Now, they did win the contested possessions and the clearances comfortably, but lost the ball on turnover. So once they, and once they lost it, they found it really hard to get it back on the outside. So the Swans had 55 more uncontested possessions and 33 more marks. So to me, that provides a real blueprint as to how you can beat the Suns, get the ball back on intercept and move it uh, through the outside. And we saw against Hawthorne that we, we were really good at controlling the ball movement down the outside. Um, and that's how potentially I'd be looking at, at one way of winning the game. But I guess how, what, do we, what do we need to do to win this game? So last time, going back to looking at what we considered important, uh, the key focuses were on the quality of the press, uh, restricting Miller through a tag, uh, importance of contested ball and stoppage clearances, and making a fast start in the first quarter. What's your take on the Suns after having seen their first game and what we should be looking to do to prevent them from uh, posing Essen in a challenge? Yeah, probably not a whole lot has changed since last time, really, uh, in terms of the approach to the game. Probably a couple of subtle things, but uh, just one thing thinking a bit more about their team too, that they have named Sexton in their squad, so it, it may even be that they look to bring him in at, and sacrifice, you know, maybe a Casbolt um, as one of their taller and, and go a bit more mobile in the forward line. Um, so, yeah, it will be interesting to see who blinks first with that selection one, whether Brad Scott brings Baldwin in thinking they might go tall or, or the Suns end up going a little bit smaller anyway. But, uh, yeah, they are a hard one to get a read of. As you said, they would have been expecting a much better result. Uh, you know, I think it's been a number of years since they had a round one game at home too. So, uh, you know, they would have been hoping to get off to a good start. Their list hasn't changed all that much, as we mentioned. Isaac Rankin, though, is a big loss. He, he's their most dynamic sort of forward mid. And, and yeah, it, they'll feel losing him quite substantially, I think, because they don't have a lot on his list on their list really like him. Uh, I think for me, this week is a, a lot less about the opposition and a bit more on us, though. I, I think we just need to keep building on the things that we did well last week and, and aim to improve them. We tagged took for a half last year and, and Caldwell played that role. I think the emergence of Noah Anderson, Matt Rowell had a really good game last week uh, and looks to have improved his fitness again. Uh, David Swallow is a very good midfielder. And, uh, you know, you spoke about Jared Witts, who I think is, you know, probably the, the second or third best ruckman in the comp. Um, so rather than running a tag this week, I just want to see us increase our, our midfield rotation depth. We, you know, we do have it in the team. 
you mentioned that Caldwell only attended the two centre bounces. So I'm increasing his midfield minutes and um, and ensuring that we have one of Setterfield or Caldwell at most centre bounces, and, and if not him, then probably Parrish is the other one who's done it successfully in the past, to make sure they take that dis- defensive position rather than an, an out-and-out tag. Because uh, you know, I don't think Caldwell can go from having you know two centre bounces tendencies last week in a pretty you know soft contested game to now going up and playing on one of the the more powerful runners and, and fittest midfielders in the comp in Took Miller. I, I think that's a big ask. So I think balance and, and increasing rotation is is the way that I'd like to go about that and, and make sure that we don't have you know Merritt, Parish, and Shield at too many centre bounces together. That that we have one of Setterfield and Caldwell there throughout to to make sure that we've got a more defensive defensively minded mid. Yeah, I think we can afford to go head to head with them in the midfield because with the structure of their forward line being so top heavy and only really Holman as a pressure forward, if you can prevent easy marks in their forward line, there's a really good opportunity for rebound. As as shown in the Swans game that they play, they struggle to contain sides when they get it on the outside. Basically, you have the plan A of, of beating them in the midfield. And I think with the mids that we've got, the quality of clearance mids that we've got, we can potentially do that. But if that fails, you have that, you have that backup plan where you win the ball through intercept and then use the um, outside foot skills to move the ball through the sun zone and develop scoring shots from that. Yeah, I think that's right, mate. And, and I think the last one for me in terms of our approach, it's not so much a tactical thing or at least not different to what we saw last week, but as we've spoken about, the Suns really did struggle to get the ball out of their back half last week. And Lockie Weller coming back really, really does help that. So we'll need to be mindful of him and not allowing him to get too loose. They'll they'll look to to use him as often as they can. But I think it's a big game for our pressure forwards. And and I, I say forwards there or pressure forwards rather than just smalls because I don't think it's just on the smalls. You know, Harry Jones took his turn last week. Wiedemann took his turn last week. So I think it's on all of our six forwards to, to keep that that momentum going and keep that those pressure levels high uh, because Lockie Waller aside, they don't have a lot of great kicks back there. Charlie Constable had 26 disposals last week. Uh, 11 of those were turnovers. You know, ben Long didn't get a, get a lot of it last week, but he's someone who's prone to turning it over. So they do have a few back there who under some pressure can turn the ball back. So I think it's just a big one for, for this part of the game that we're now trying to build our game around this this forward pressure and and maintaining you know forward territory, I think it's a it's a big test and it's the part of the game that can can be uh, that that can give us real ascendancy, I think, and, and where we can get a lot of our goals from. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're going to start heading towards the end of the show. And again, for the, those who've only just started listening to us, we don't make predictions about who's going to win the match and the margin. But we do finish with a final thought, and I often struggle to come up with what the final thought will be. Um, this week, I managed to come up with it fairly easily. And, John, I want you to finish this thought. Our most important player this week will be? I think it could be Will Setterfield this week. If, if he can build on his game last week and, uh, you know, good start to his Essendon career, then I, I think he helps us to win more contested ball. He helps bring our other mids into into the game. He can help restrict their access to contested ball, which then obviously makes it harder for them to to get the ball down to their their key forwards. And and as I mentioned earlier, they're a team that's really vulnerable on the outside. So I think Setterfield kind of plays a key role in, in that with his size and, and his defensive mindness that 
but yeah, I, I think he could be our most important player. For me, it's Ridley. As as I said, if you lose that contested ball, then that obviously the the intercepting defender becomes really important in terms of presenting preventing the Suns key forwards from getting clean access to the ball. So we need to find a way to make sure we can release him in that intercepting defending role, uh, either by playing the extra key defender in Baldwin or trusting him to play loose off a Casbolt or an underdone King. King really wasn't uh, effective against the Swans. And then once he has the ball, using his uh, foot skills to break open the Sun zone to create scoring opportunities. So I think he's a real key if the if the Suns get on top in the middle. We're really going to be relying on him as that last line of defense and then also being able to generate those scoring opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting. We we both had similar thoughts, haven't we, on, on how we approach that, but for different reasons, you know, mine at the source and yours protecting if the source breaks down. So I, I think um, either way, those two guys are both going to have big roles to to play in, in you know, whether or not we, we win or lose this game. Yeah. Well, look, as I said, that's going to wrap up the show tonight. Once again, thanks for all the support across all the platforms. Um, if you enjoy the show, uh, please share it with any of your Essendon supporting friends and relatives to get it out to more people. That will be appreciated. Uh, any final words from you, Jono? No, uh, just hope you and the family make a fast recovery, mate. And, um, yeah, good to uh, obviously get a win on the belt and let's hope we make it two from two this week. Absolutely. Anyway, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Go Dons. Sard, McDonald, Tip and Woody, good dance step, runs inside, has a couple of bounces, spears the pass, hook Yes, that's what they do, hook a forward, ran down. So much rides on this kick. For the lead back, Innie Strats, struck it well, phenomenal. Hook a forward, Bombers back in front, 35 seconds left. 